As Christmas approaches, we look back on a momentous year for Britain and Europe. And not just because the European golf team lost the Ryder Cup to Team USA. The referendum has obviously changed the world that we live in. And I say this because in a digital age, many are sceptical of the power of historical events to change reality. Certainly in the tinsel fantasy world of Christmas, uh, there's all sorts of mythologies, isn't there? Santa Claus can be a lot of fun. What you call a child who doesn't believe in Santa, a rebel without a clause. (laughs) What did Mrs. Claus reply when Santa asked her for the weather forecast? Rain, dear. (laughs) What do you call Santa's little helpers but subordinate clauses? There's all kinds of fun to be had with Santa Claus and Christmas. But it would be a terrible error to think that we live in a virtual world of myth. Nowhere more than in Westminster are we aware that some events really do change the world. A referendum in Britain, an election in America, a war in Syria, terrorism in France. These events change people's lives, not only the financial markets and jobs and funding for the NHS and social care, but cultural attitudes and moral behaviours. Some events really do change our lives. And none more than the historical events of the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may know that on the 20th of August 1940, having visited the Battle of Britain Operations Bunker in Uxbridge and been deeply moved, Winston Churchill was being driven to the House of Commons practising his famous speech. Never in the history of mankind has so much been owed by so many to so few. His driver, Pug, interrupted him. Uh, What about Jesus and the disciples? Good old Pug, responded Churchill, and changed the line to famously read, Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. And I want to suggest to you that in the history of mankind, never has been so much owed by so many to the baby that was born that first Christmas, to Jesus Matthew's account of the wise men visiting the baby Jesus, made famous by T.S. Eliot's poem, numerous paintings of the adoration of the Magi, and countless school nativity plays with adoring parents gathered to film their children at the stable in Bethlehem, dressed as sheep, ducks, rabbits, penguins, lobsters, and other Palestinian wildlife. (laughs) We know that Matthew's account is historically accurate because scholars have discovered so many Manuscript copies of the Gospels with historical details concerning public figures, such as Herod, John the Baptist, Caiaphas, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus himself, confirmed by the non-Christian historians of the period. And in this text, we don't find three kings called Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. We're not even told if there were three of them. We're just guessing because there were three fabulous gifts. Perhaps there were four, and one of them was extremely selfish. We don't know. But there are three big surprises here about Jesus' birth. Three surprises that would define Jesus' whole life. First, promised to Bethlehem, a humble king. Let me read from verse 1 once more. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judah, they replied. Well, this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote from Micah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, do you know what a shock that is? Bethlehem was a tiny, unimportant village about five miles outside of Jerusalem. Apart from King David being born there a thousand years earlier, nothing had happened there since. A bit like Stratford-on-Avon, only famous for one person being born there. Why on earth would God choose to take flesh and be born in Bethlehem? That's hardly where royalty are to be born. Our own Prince George and Princess Charlotte were born in state-of-the-art London hospitals, attended by first-class medical teams. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus was born in a stable, laid in a cattle trough, and attended by rustic shepherds. What was God doing? I mean, he, he knew what was happening. He'd sent angels to Mary and Joseph to explain that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so it's hardly a surprise to God. Why have his son born in flesh? In Bethlehem. I mean, in verse 2, we know he's the promised king, God's global ruler. Verse 4, he's the Christ, God's chosen redeemer. Verse 6, he's the shepherd, God's protective guide. Was this a dreadful logistical mistake? No, it was intentional. Herod's scholars quickly found the famously improbable promise of Micah that God's saviour would be born in Bethlehem. Indeed, there are many details in the Old Testament predicted hundreds of years before Jesus, so that we could recognise God's king when he came. He'd be born of a virgin, of the tribe of Judah, in the town of David. He'd grow up to heal the sick and raise the dead and calm the waves. He'd be betrayed by pieces of silver by a friend, deserted by the rest, unjustly condemned, pierced through hands and feet to die amongst criminals with no bones broken, as soldiers gambled for his clothes by his grave. Will allow some people to leave the crowd to go and do their work. All these promises in the Old Testament, I'm sure they're familiar to you, were meant to make God's king easy to recognize. So, why was he born in Bethlehem? Because this king would be a humble king. Because, would you believe that the supreme being is humble? Not just pretending to be humble, not just pretending to be lowly. When God took flesh to reveal himself in the categories that we can understand, we discover to our joy that God is servant, servant servant-hearted and humble. In a world of rulers like Putin and Trump, Assad, Mugabe and Kim Jong-un, many given to aggressive self-promotion, it does seem incredible that when God took flesh, he came as a humble king to be born in Bethlehem. Indeed, he humbled himself to be ordinary so that he could swap places with ordinary people like you and me. Many people find this absurd. Why would the supreme being shrink himself down to become somebody so ordinary, born in such an ordinary village, such an ordinary working-class couple? Why would he do such a thing? Because he came to swap places with ordinary people like you and me. Because he loves ordinary people like you and me. He was promised to Bethlehem because he is a humble king who came to save ordinary people, even like you and me. Secondly, we find he was hated by Herod, a despised king. Let me read from verse 7. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. We know from verse 3 that when Herod heard of the birth of Jesus, he was disturbed. It's a nice English translation because it's a very good word for him. Although he was politically astute and a builder of huge buildings, including the temple, he was a paranoid megalomaniac. He killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law and two sons in order to be rid of rivals. But why did Herod hate this little baby? Because, verse 7, he felt threatened. He called the Magi secretly to find out where this king of the Jews had been born. And later in the chapter, if you read on, you discover why. He had all the baby boys under the age of two in the vicinity of Bethlehem slaughtered. In a desperate effort effort to be rid of all potential rivals. He was not actually Jewish, he was Idumean. That is a puppet king imposed by the Romans, but not a true king by birth. And he knew that Jesus was the true king, the Christ, and he wanted to be rid of him. Verse 4, he'd been promised by God in the Old Testament, but he had no intention of submitting to another, even God's king. Now, none of us, of course, would contemplate slaughtering children, but we are sometimes as desperate as Herod to avoid the rule of this king. Like Herod, we're tempted to pretend to be interested briefly at Christmas before packing Jesus away with the tinsel and the fairy lights for another year. Because we will do our best to be rid of him. We do not want to surrender our lives to his rule. We don't intend others to have that opportunity either. And so he's removed from public life as far as possible. In verse 8, Herod Herod claims to want to worship the child. It's the most diminished description available to Herod. Go and find the child so that I can worship him. Sadly, many people today will not consider Jesus as the great saviour king from heaven because they will not submit to his rule. They seem to have little clue or understanding of how wonderful Jesus can be in our lives. As was sung so beautifully earlier, Jesus was promised to be the wonderful counsellor, bringing the wisdom for our lives that we so need. The mighty God bringing us protection that we all need. The everlasting Father bringing us the love that we all crave. The Prince of Peace bringing rest for our souls. There was a man who became a Christian recently in our church called Tony. He was a soldier. He was a tough man. He was a security guard and prison guard for a while. And recently he realised what Jesus had done, even for him. I interviewed him publicly and he said... He said, the truth is, Richard, in my life, I've done some dreadful, terrible things. And when I think that Jesus loves me so much that he came to swap places with even me on that cross, he said, to be honest, I cry every day with the joy of it. You see, that is the kind of king we're talking about here. Not someone who exploits and uses us, but someone who loves and serves us as our saviour. In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, the renowned scientist Richard Dawkins says on page 253, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. 
I want to say to you that the Bible calls that love. Jesus, of course, agreed with much of Dawkins' critique of world religion. It is, ten, it does, it is prone to exploit, exploit the vulnerable. But he misunderstands the central glory of the gospel, that God came as a man to swap places with us on the cross. Or to quote the words of the Arsenal manager, Arsene Wenger, Christmas is important, but Easter is decisive. Never were truer words spoken by a football manager. You see, God took flesh because he loves us with a passionate, undeserved, costly and amazing love. And many people don't realise what a wonderful saviour he is. It reminds me of that uh, story you may know of Bombardier Robert Key, who in the Second World War uh, was uh, taking some off time uh, down in near Anazin in France. And um, he got blown up by a grenade. The reports of his death in the army uh, records um, described him as being rather foolish, uh, that he had somehow been mucking around with a grenade and blown himself up. And his family were somewhat ashamed of his record and uh, promptly forgot him. And then just a few years ago, just recently, the mayor of the town in France, uh, where he had died, wrote to the family to ask if they could name the high street in their village after him because he was such a hero in their parts. And the truth emerged that far from being the fool who had rather stupidly lost his life, what had happened was he'd come across a group of children who were playing in the fields who'd found some unexploded uh, ordnance, found a grenade, and a little boy had pulled the pin and was holding the grenade. And shouting at them, Bombardier Robert here yelled over, grabbed the grenade, and clutching it into his own belly as to protect the children was blown up by the grenade. The children were saved, and of course he gave his life in saving them. So far from being a fool, he was the hero. It struck me that's often like Jesus. Many people don't realise what Jesus came to do. He did not come to ruin our lives, but to save us, because he loves us so much. But he was hated by Herod, a despised king. If only Herod had bothered, like the Magi, to go and find out more about this child. And so he was hated by Herod, a despised king. Third and lastly, worshipped by wise men, a glorious king. Let me read from verse 9. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, the Magi were Eastern astrologers, learned scholars from what is now Iran. They had clearly studied the Old Testament scriptures and were now drawn by this miraculous star to search out this baby king. Here begins God's promised gathering of the nations to his saviour. Indeed, of course, that gathering has continued. And you'd be mistaken to think that Christianity is on its way out just because in some of the ancient denominations there has been declining attendance in this country. I learned recently, for example, in China, that there are more, mem more members of evangelical churches than there are members of the Communist Party. In South Korea, 40% of the nation describe themselves as Christian. 
In Iran, it's now reckoned to be more than a million believers in Jesus. It is very far from the truth to think that Christianity has had its day. All over the world, the nations continue to gather to this saviour. It must have been an incredibly arduous journey for these men as they travelled hundreds of miles across desert to find this child. Of course, they were not coming for a baby. There must have been plenty of beautiful babies back home. Now, they'd come in search of a child who would grow up to be a king. And in verse 11, they bowed down in worship and gave him gifts that, however consciously, express his majesty. Gold, fit for a king. Incense, fit for God. Myrrh, fit for a burial. For this is the divine king who will die out of love for us. God in skin, who came to swap places with us on that cross to save us from the consequences of the way we treat God and the way we treat other people. It's been said that for God to allow a sacrifice was grace. For God to provide the sacrifice is amazing grace. For God to become the sacrifice is grace beyond our understanding. And so he is worshipped by wise men. These eminent scholars bowed before Jesus. It's a little bit like Buddha and Confucius and may I even say Stephen Fry perhaps, bowing before the baby in worship. He's not just a religious prophet, but God come in flesh, the glorious king worshipped by wise men. And so finally, verse 12, notice how the wise men responded. When God warned them about Herod's hatred, they listened to God and they travelled by a different route. And I wonder if I might uh, encourage those, perhaps particularly those who would not call themselves believers here this evening. I wonder if you might hear the voice of God here in this text, calling you to take a different route from now on. Not to be intimidated or misdirected by those who plainly, like Herod, feel threatened by Jesus, who want to be kings themselves and will never surrender themselves to the rule of God's king, who may pretend to admire him but really want to be rid of him for another year. I wonder if I might encourage you to listen to the voice of God, calling us here in this text to be like the wise men, to take a different route in the coming year, to search for Jesus, who has promised to Bethlehem because he's the humble king, hated by Herod because he's a despised king, but worshipped by wise men then and now because he's God's glorious king. To search for him until you find him. And when you find him, to worship him. As there may be another division, I may invite you now to bow your heads for prayer. For those that need to go, please go. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the invitation of this passage be like the wise men, willing to travel and to journey until we find your great king, who was born in Bethlehem because he's a humble king, who does not dominate or exploit us, but gently invites us to know his love, to beware of those who hate him like Herod, aware that they feel threatened by Jesus and will never surrender to your king. Help us to be like the wise men who searched for Jesus until they found him and discovering him to be a glorious king, gave him everything they had and worshipped him. So we pray, living God, whether we are new to Christian things, find them strange, 
or very familiar with them, we pray that this Christmas might be a special time, that we might take a different route. And rather than just following with the crowd who hate him, instead search for and worship your glorious king, the one who came to die for us because he loves us. And we ask it for his glory and for our joy. Amen.